Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, Father, we are grateful tonight for the chance to be together. We're grateful for the chance to be able to come and hear from your word, to have the confidence that you speak to us and that you do so as we are gathered together and that there's something especially sweet about your church and your people together weekly in a, in a rhythm of grace to come together and receive from you directly. And so we ask, Father, that you would speak to us by your word given to us tonight. We ask that you would shape us as individuals, as a church. And then we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In 1857, about 20 years after a church was actually founded on this corner, it's in the same kind of era, but in 1857 in Manhattan, a quiet 46-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear started a weekly lunchtime prayer meeting in Manhattan. His idea was he just wanted to, he called a few friends and colleagues and let them know that he was going to take his lunch hour and instead of going and enjoying a restaurant or enjoying a meal at his desk, he was going to gather, he, was, he wanted to simply pray. He called on his friends to say, let's get together and wait on the Lord together. Anyone could attend. It was an open invitation, whether for a few minutes or the full hour. And, um, and so he did. It's an altogether unspectacular idea, right? And as he did, that first prayer meeting, he spent the first 30 minutes at least completely alone. No one joined him. But he still pressed on. He, he continued to invite friends to join him and, and to just come and to pray and to wait on the Lord to move. Now, this idea of waiting on the Lord is something that if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've heard that expression before, right? Some, if you're newer to the church or you're not a Christian, maybe that's not something you've heard people say. Within the church world, that's one of those Christianese terms that people say, and, and I don't know that we always even know what it means. And so people will say things like, I think sometimes waiting on the Lord um, can get confusing because sometimes it's really, it seems like it's just a, a way to excuse laziness, and so there are people that are like, well, I really hate my job, or I have no job, and I would like to have a better job, or any job, and so I'm just waiting on the Lord to see what happens. You go, that's great. Have you sent any applications out? No. <laughs> have you built a resume? No. Are you working connections and trying to get meals with people? No, I'm just waiting on the Lord. No, that is not the same thing. There's something different that has to go on. Or what about, sometimes, I feel like at least... For me, when I was in high school and college, it was used more as a soft letdown in dating relationships. Like, I would get the answer of, I would really like to date you, you're really nice, but I'm just waiting on the Lord to bring me a husband. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe your wait is over. <laughs> um, but it was just a way to be nice and try not to hurt my feelings, as if you can't see through that. 
tonight we're going to take a look at what it means to actually wait on God to move, to wait on the Lord to come through in his promises, to wait on the Lord to bring healing and to mend what is broken, to wait on the Lord to come in power in our lives and in our church. And we're continuing a series through Acts that we just began last Sunday, and we're taking this, this semester, we're taking the first seven chapters of Acts to see the beginnings of the church. And just before ascending, Jesus gave, words, gave his followers two commands. And so in chapter one of Acts, what we saw last week is he said to them, he said, listen, while staying with them, he ordered them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And he said to them, and when you that, so wait in Jerusalem and they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus told his followers that. He told his disciples that. Remember, this is just 40 days after the crucifixion and resurrection. And so just 40 days prior, they had experienced that and walked through that devastatingly confusing time as they watched the man they believed to be Messiah arrested and killed and spent. And then on the third day, he was raised from death to life. And so they had 40 days in Jesus' presence. And then he pulls them out to the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And he ascended into the clouds to angelic beings came up alongside them and said, men of Galilee, why do you look up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that brings us to our text today. And we'll see how this early Christian community responded. So it says this in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, were, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who, came, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to, get his own, to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So after the ascension, the disciples got it right. They actually obeyed Jesus. They returned to Jerusalem. 
And they waited for God. They waited for the promise of the Spirit. And, and in this, I had to look it up. I, was, I, don't, I didn't realize what a Sabbath day's journey might be. I don't know if many of you count your steps on the Sabbath. I know many of you count your steps on your phone. That's not what I mean. I mean in a restrictive way. A Sabbath day's journey was about 0.6 miles, which for us right now tonight would be a stroll from here to the Capitol Dome. So not having ever been to Jerusalem, for me that's striking how close the proximity was from the Mount called Olivet into the city of Jerusalem and into an upper room. There's been speculation in this passage that the upper room that they went to may have even been the same upper room that Jesus spent his last night before his arrest with his disciples. And so they gathered together in the upper room, and they, as they did, they were called now to wait. And so these early followers of Jesus, there were 120 of them, it tells us. And Luke is, I love that Luke gives us these kinds of details, because it really captures for us what the community looked like at that time. The entirety of the Christian church was, honestly, church, about when you look around in the room right now. And so they were gathered together. They gather together not knowing what to do. And you've got to understand, we've got to try to capture and, and begin to comprehend exactly how confusing this would have been for these folks. I mean, remember in chapter 1 that Jesus said, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. You're going you're gonna to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes on you in power, then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the first response of the disciples was, great, is now when you overthrow Rome? Is this it, Jesus? You're going to bring your kingdom to bear now? And so they were still missing it at that point. And now Jesus was like, all right, forget this. Peace out. He ascends. <laughs> and then the disciples are left standing and looking into the sky. Like they had no concept what he was going to do. And this is a consistent theme we see all the way through Luke's gospel, too. And Jesus told them over and over and over again, hey, it is necessary, I must go to Jerusalem. And it is necessary for me, us to go to Jerusalem because I'm going to be arrested at the hands of the leaders. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life. And the disciples go, cool. And then when they show up to arrest Jesus, they don't know what's going on. They scatter. Even though he told them over and over and over again, they, they didn't comprehend exactly what he came to do, and they continually tried to understand how to fit his mission and what he was trying to accomplish into a grid of their expectations. And so what we see happen here in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 is actually a pretty stark shift. Because honestly, looking here, what I would have expected here, and I think what my natural tendencies would have been, just the way that I'm wired at this point, wouldn't have been to do everything we see the apostles do here. I think I would have gotten back to that upper room. I mean, it's, again, it's a half-mile walk, so it wasn't far back to the place they were staying. After the ascension, to get back to Jerusalem and go, okay, we're here. Jesus told us to wait for the Holy Spirit. I have no idea what that means. And so he also told us we're supposed to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's figure this out. Let's start strategizing. Let's build some plans. How are we going to reach people in Jerusalem? How are we going to be his witnesses in this place? And then how is that going to expand? What, is, you know, what are the parameters for Judea and Samaria? And what did we learn from him? And what are the ways we can implement those things and begin to mobilize this community to be, to be able to bring the kingdom to bear that he has called us to? I would have wanted to move all those ways, but they don't do that they wait. And in waiting, I think they show us five pursuits as we wait for God to move in our own lives and in our own church. 
So the first one is that they gather together in unity. It says they return to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and then it lists the 11. And I love this, that, that even in the New Testament church context, some of the 11 were just on a one-name basis. Like Simon Peter is, is used in places in the New Testament. Here, it's just Peter. John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, like those guys clearly a little bit more known, and then you have to differentiate. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, which is a different James, and then you have Simon, the zealot. That guy is always mentioned with the words the zealot after his name. <laughs> like that's how he's distinguished from Simon Peter. But also it's fascinating to realize that, the, that distinguishing that he's a zealot is also, there's something, there's a little bit of, a, of something there because to call him a zealot was actually to, to give his political leanings away. He was a guy that stood adamantly opposed to Rome and looked for the overthrowing of the Roman Empire, and he was zealous for, a, a, for Israel to take power back. And so he was on the same team as Matthew, who was a tax collector and worked for the government. This was the team that Jesus had built. And then the poor last guy that's listed there, Judas, the son of James, forever would be linked with the name Judas, which isn't a name that most of us would choose for our children. Because there's connotations to the name Judas. And even here, it's the clarity of not Judas Iscariot, not that Judas. It's Judas, the son of James. But they were together, 120 or so people. And it says they were all with one accord. And so we need to see that this is where things start right off the bat. That waiting on the Lord happens when we're gathered together in unity with other followers of Christ in the church. That most of us have made our spiritual lives an almost completely individual pursuit. Even if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, my guess is that, that, that as you try out different aspects and different pursuits, different avenues and pathways that you could go down, it's almost entirely a perspective of what, what am I going to pursue, what's going to be fulfilling for my life, how it is going to be the best fit for me. And that's how most of us handle it, even if you're a follower of Christ. We look at my life, my relationship with God, my spiritual disciplines, what I'm going to get out of a church experience, what I am going to be able to give in, how I'm going to grow, and, and everything is about our individualism. Even introducing the idea of waiting on the Lord, most of the examples that we could jump to most quickly are probably about ourselves. What is the area in your life that you wish God would speak more clearly to right now? Is it about your job, your career? That's good, these are good things. They're good things to wait on God in his help for. Is it a spouse? Either that you'd really like to be married, you're not sure how that's gonna happen, or you're dating somebody and you're not sure if that's gonna be the one, or you're married and you're trying to figure out how to, how to actually make that work? Is it, is it life direction? I mean, listen, all these things are important. And they're good things to seek God's voice on. But if we pursue even those things only as individuals, on our own, it's not good. It's not right. It's not how God has designed us and created us to live. You weren't created or you weren't with the capacity to discern God's will in a vacuum on your own or to wrestle through this life alone. 
To be in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be a part of his church. And the idea of a Christian floating around on their own and removed from the community of the local church is completely foreign to the New Testament. But the idea that we're individualistic in our pursuit of Christ isn't a novel thing either. It's not new just because, you know, gosh darn it, we're Americans, and Americans are individualistic. And I know not all of you are even Americans, but welcome to our country. <laughs> There's so many things that I wanted to say right at that moment that I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to hold off and let your mind wander. <laughs> All right. In Hebrews chapter 10, a letter written to one of these early churches, and actually Hebrews may have actually been a sermon the way it's laid out. It reads like a sermon. And so some would say that Hebrews captured one of the only full sermons we have from the early church. And so he comes to this pinnacle moment in Hebrews chapter 10 as he leads into talking about what faith is. But before that, he's talking about the beauty of what Christ has accomplished for us, that it's by his blood and his sacrifice that a new way has been opened for us because we have a great high priest in the household of God. And so we have the opportunity to draw near to God himself without intermediaries, without being based on our own works and our own capability, but based on Christ and his righteousness that we can draw with a true heart and full assurance of faith because Christ has sprinkled our hearts clean from evil consciences. And then out of that, that transcendent portrait of what Jesus has accomplished for us, what we're invited into through him, it's in that context then that the, the author of Hebrews says, so let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, even he at that time had to remind people, hey, it's important that you get together. It's important that you're embedded in community with each other. It's, it, it's vital to your own spiritual life, not just that you have been given access to God's throne directly. It's not just that you as an individual now can come before God directly, which is true in Christ. But don't let that make it so that your entire life becomes only about you and him because he's also placed you in a community. And we have the privilege of stirring each other up to love and stirring each other up to good work and, and to continue to meet together because that meeting together will stir our hearts for God in ways that an individualized faith never can. So how do we build that kind of unity? I mean, especially in times of uncertainty. Again, this is a time of uncertainty and confusion for these folks. We're talking 40 days after the resurrection. So they just walked through that crazy emotional and, and real roller coaster of events, lived for 40 days in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, and now he's gone. And they come together in unity. And there's something incredible about that. Jesus had ascended, and this is the first portrait we get of the church left on its own. And they come together with one accord. That's what a beautiful way to portrait, picture it. Now, it this, is, this begins to get a glimpse of what we read in Psalm 133. 
Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So somehow in the aftermath of the, of the ascension, in an event that these folks didn't expect, they came together all in unity together. And it would have been so easy for that to have been broken up. Think about how unity gets broken up for us, in our families, in our churches, in our, in our, in our workplaces, in the office. I mean, it happens all the time, that, that, and it can be driven within our own hearts. It begins with a, a self-focus and a selfish agenda. To say, you know, I need to make sure that I get what's, what, what's coming to and what, me and what's mine. Well, that'll lead to broader agendas that we can all have a perspective of saying, well, there's one, thing, way that, there's one way that things ought to go here. And that would have been easy here. Again, they've got, you've got 11 apostles left. You've got, you've got 120 people gathered together. Jesus has ascended. And they, they could have come together. And you can imagine how quick infighting could have happened between these folks. If they decided this is the one way it's got to go, if, they, if then pride started to creep in and, and it wasn't just there's one way it ought to go, but it was, hey, I know what's best and I deserve a little more recognition here. Like if one of the apostles was like, hey, why, does, why do I have to be the one that's James, the son of Alphaeus? Why don't, why don't I just get to be James? You can be the one that gets the more descriptions. Like, what about my name? And we saw some of that in the disciples early on through Luke's gospel and through the journey they had with Jesus where, where they were arguing with each other about who was the greatest and arguing with each other, pleading with Jesus, asking Jesus like, hey, do I get to sit at your right hand when you're in your throne in glory? And so it's not that they weren't susceptible to these things. If we let self-focus and agendas and pride creep in, then gossip is, follows quick on its heels. His gossip is our way of making sure that the right version of the story is heard and the wrong versions are corrected. And inevitably, that'll lead to slander as we make sure that people know what's wrong with other people. And church, we always need to be very, very careful about being the accuser against our brothers and sisters in the church. There's one that holds that role and that title and we don't need to help him. So why, how do they build that kind of unity? And this is what's going to help us along the way. If we really want to know what it is to wait on the Lord, then first it begins by saying that that doesn't happen on our own. That happens embedded in community and unity together. But then the next four things we see actually help build that unity. The first is that they pray together. You see that in verse 14. All these were gathered together with, were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so the first thing they do is they wait on God together is they pray together. They, they turn and seek God's direction and help. They rest in God's presence together. And, and again, like this may sound completely unspectacular. Because you may look at this and go, well, is, would this be your natural reaction? If, I mean, maybe you, because we just read the passage and because it's on the screen right now, you go, well, of course they pray together. But what, what is your actual natural reaction when you're trying to seek God's will and God's face and his voice and his direction? Do you actually leave the space to pray? Do you pursue God's presence in prayer individually and do you pursue it with other people? 
you know, it's so often that, that it's, I think one of the difficult things and sad things that, that I see that happens within churches is when Christians involved in and embedded in church families don't involve the people that are closest to them in their church family as they face major decisions in their lives. Like, why, if you're considering a move and a, and a career change, would you not bring the people in your community group into that discussion and ask them to join you in praying for clarity? Why do we believe that that's just got to be a, an individual decision? Why is it that if you're, if you're in a dating relationship and things are starting to get serious, you decide that you've got to take that on on your own and you don't actually bring that to the people that you're closest to? I don't know if it's that we're scared or that other people are going to disagree with us and, and it's our own agenda that needs to go forward in our own lives. I don't know if it's just that we don't want to be that vulnerable. But these folks come together and they've got nothing to turn to and so they stop and pray. There's 120 people that are scared and feel alone after Christ had departed. And it could have turned to infighting, but instead they devoted themselves to prayer together. And they were together in this. Redemption Hill, I would love to see our church be characterized by this kind of devotion to prayer. It's really hard to be angry with each other and backbiting when we're praying together. And this is the only way that we can actually get ourselves into alignment with God's work. Charles Spurgeon was, is still probably one of the great, most well-known and most gifted preachers that has, has lived in at least the English-speaking world. He was in Victorian-era London and um, ended up starting Metropolitan Tabernacle, which became a massive church that started all kinds of ministries all over the city. It had orphanages running and colleges and almshouses, and he was in, it was involved in, in truly transforming the city of London, as well as it was a church that grew to thousands of people that were coming to Christ constantly as, as, Spur, as Spurgeon was used as God's instrument to bring a, a fresh wind of the gospel into a devastatingly bleak place. London was a rough place to live at the time. Spurgeon was uh, widely published. He may have more words published than any Christian author ever. His, his sermons were published every week in the papers. So he would work on Mondays to edit his transcripts to make sure that the transcripts could go to print and they would print by Thursday that week. Can you imagine that now? Like, for real, can you imagine if every Monday I decided I was gonna send a transcript into the Washington Post? And they would be like, shred. <laughs> Send this to the lab to get tested. This guy's clearly not stable. Insane. Like, it's just not a thing. But for, at the time, it wasn't like there were podcasts. There, we don't have any audio recordings of Spurgeon's voice. But it was a way for the church and the city to experience what was being proclaimed from that pulpit um, in, the, in printed word. Those things were bound together and, and published, and he had journals that the church would write called The Sword and The Trowel, and he, he also had, um, he had, he had a college that he founded for pastors to train up pastors, and, and his lectures, they ended up capturing, his wife captured his lectures to his students in a volume, and then sent that to pastors all over England to be able to help pastors to learn how to do the work they were doing well, and, and in the midst of all of that, Spurgeon was, was asked at one point, where, you know, how is it? that you've done all these things and you've accomplished so much for God's kingdom and for the gospel in, in this place and at this time. And Spurgeon would consistently cite that the power that came into the ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle was not located in the pulpit, it was located in the boiler room. 
because there were devoted people in Spurgeon's church that would gather every Sunday while he preached and pray throughout the service. In one of the articles, one edition of The Sword and the Trowel, he wrote, he, he, they captured a, a, um, a message he had given at a prayer meeting of his church. And at that meeting, he said, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. So if we want to have unity together, and we actually want to wait on the Lord and see his direction and help, we need to pray together. The, the third aspect that we see tonight is that we need to lament together. And Peter leads the way on this. He stands up and, and leads them into lament. They don't gloss over what had happened with Judas. They say, this is the reality we've walked through. They face it head on. <clears throat> After the last couple of years, so I think some of the biggest lessons I've learned as a pastor in the last two years is really that pastors and leaders within the church have a calling and a responsibility, maybe even primarily, to be the lead lamenters in their community, to be able to enter into and take on the pain of the people in the church and express those things before God so that we corporately can walk through them and seek God's face and his healing together. And so here, what had happened? Well, Peter captures it. He says, again, like for us, I think we think Judas is just an enemy, somebody that's evil and wicked. For them, Peter's like, hey, Judas was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in this ministry. He said, this is, he was their friend and for three years walked with them and ate with them and, and camped out with them in the, as they were between places. And Judas was part of the same ministry as the other apostles, seeing the power of God come on full display as demons were cast out and people were healed. He was a part of all of it. And they were shocked on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And again, this is just a little over a month earlier that it had happened that their friend betrayed the Messiah. He sold him, and he betrayed him with a kiss, like the most intimate greeting you can give, and that's the way he identified which one was Jesus to his captors. And then they lost a friend. Judas committed suicide. Matthew 27 fills in some gaps for us here. It says that Judas money, threw his money into the temple. The priests used it to buy the field that he had killed himself on. Matthew tells us he hanged himself, and Luke gives the outcome, that he also fell headlong and burst open in the middle and gives us a graphic imagery that his bowels rushed out. So waiting on the Lord can't mean that we don't address our circumstances. It actually means the opposite. It means that we don't minimize the hurt and pain of our lives, but lean into and accept the brokenness we see. That's what lament is. It's not self-pity or depression. It's, it's stepping into the brokenness. Paul Miller says that a lament grieves that the world is unbalanced. It grieves the gap between the reality we see and God's promise. It believes in a God who is who can act in time and space, so it, it doesn't drift into cynicism or unbelief, but engages God passionately with what's wrong. We're scared to enter into lament, and most of us are bad at it. You can, in practice, once you start doing it, it's something you can become more comfortable with, but, but in general, it's not a characteristic that I would say that the American church has done a great job at. 
We have a tendency to get uncomfortable when people are in suffering. We don't know how to respond to it when somebody breaks down and cries, especially if you're a guy. Like, guys have no clue what to do when somebody's crying in front of them. You just, like, freeze up and go, ugh. Like, I I would like to fix this, and I know I'm not supposed to fix that because I've been told that, and I don't know what to do. So we freeze up. For some of us, our theological systems don't allow us to have mystery or confusion. And, and some of, for, maybe the theological tribes we find ourselves in even make us nervous about sliding in un, un, you know, unaware into theological error. Like if we cry out from our hearts, what if we say something that's heresy? And then somebody in our community group is going to be like, um, are you a Christian? <laughs> Which is the moment, like that's what you need to hear when you're really broken and crying out, right? Is <laughs> somebody questioning your salvation because you miss a theological nuance. Or maybe it's that we want to be the ones who are the problem solvers. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to come off as self-pitying navel gazers. We want to be the helpers. But what we need to understand is that if we aren't able to lament, if we aren't able to embrace and walk through and deal with our suffering, we're never going to get closer to God. Paul Miller went on to say, The lament puts us in an openly dependent position where our brokenness reflects the brokenness of the world. It's pure authenticity. Holding it in and not giving a voice to lament can be a way of putting a good face on it. But to not lament puts God at arm's length and has the potential of splitting us. We appear to be okay, but we are really brokenhearted. So listen, I know that you don't want to be dependent on others. I like to be independent too. I like to be the strong one. But if you can't learn to lament and embrace the reality of the suffering that you face and that others face around you, if we can't come together and cry out to God together, then we're not going to see the unity of of the Spirit developed like what we see in Acts 1, and we're not going to see the power of the Spirit moving through us. And we've experienced this. If you've been around the church for any amount of time or just in relationships with people, individual brokenness can be a gift to the community. Because when we see people really in need and really broken and really in, at points of sorrow and we're able to respond to them and point them to the beauty of God's love for them and enter into that pain with them, that, that fosters a closeness together. It's a gift. And that's true of corporately too. And corporate sorrow can divide people, but it also can foster unity. And here, Peter leads them well into lamenting together. He also leads them to turn to God's word together. That's what we see next, is that Peter stands up as the leader and directs them to scripture. It says he stood up among the brothers and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand to the mouth of David. He recounts what had happened in Judas's life, and, then, and, and he does what a good leader in the church would do. This is Peter's calling from Jesus himself. In John 21, we read that, that you know, Jesus called Peter and restored him after his, after his denials and said, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And when Peter said, yes, I love you, he said, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. And then the third time, Peter says, do you really love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. So that's what Peter's doing. He's taking these, the 120 people to the only place that he knows to turn. He takes them to God's word. He quotes Psalm 69, which is one of the New Testament's favorite psalms to talk about Jesus in. 
that it's, it talks about the suffering of God's innocent one and the enemies surrounding them and cries out for God to bring judgment and empty the enemy's household. And then he turns to Psalm 109, which is, it has similar themes, and it calls for the judgment to include a replacement for the one that had left with someone that's worthy for the position. And so they rightly turn to God's word together to seek God's direction for them together. Now, this is something that I hope you do too, that when we want direction and long for God's, God to speak to us and we want to hear his voice, I think sometimes that we leave that way more subjective. We just say, I just really want God to speak to me. You need to hear, he has spoken to us. He's given us his word. And in fact, any impression we get of what God may be saying to us outside of his word needs to be measured against what we have in scripture. It's our our authority over everything that we believe in. All all truth is, is defined by what we have in scripture because God has spoken and so as we turn and want to hear his voice, the first directive I would give you as your pastors say, that's fantastic. It may be that you get a very clear moment where the spirit moves in your heart to bring clarity to your life and to the questions that you're facing. But most of the time that's happened in my life, it's happened while I'm immersed in God's word because something speaks to me out of it. And so turn to scripture, open the Bible and read it. It is a source of life and hope and it can guide us in our lives. But we also need to do that in community. Because community brings accountability and encouragement and it brings us together. If we read God's word in a vacuum, there are all kinds of things we can do with it. Have you ever played Bible roulette? Where you're like, God, I don't know what to do with this relationship. I haven't been reading this much lately, so I don't really know where to turn. But I'm going to go here. And then what I should do this relationship is when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. (laughs) I'm supposed to get married. (laughs) It has the word veil. I've seen weddings. (laughs) Brides can wear veils. So clearly, because in her face I see the radiance of the glory of God, this is the verse I was led to, now we will be married. Whether or not she knows it's coming. That's ludicrous. And if Peter would have stood up and done something like that, I think the other 10 apostles would have said, ah, Peter. (laughs) <laughs> you need to sit down. <laughs> like Jesus did that to him when Peter tried to stand against, when Jesus said, I'm going to go and suffer and die. And Peter said, no, you're not. And he said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter had been confronted before. The guy could take it. When we take an individualized approach to faith, it's too easy to slide off that way and to begin to manipulate God's word. And really what we're doing is we're finding ways. We will, if, if you want to find a verse in the Bible to justify your decision and desire, you can find it. There are a lot of verses, there are a lot of words in there. And if you're not taking them in context and understanding them in the context of a community that can come around you, then you're not actually being faithful to pursue God's voice the way he's set us up to. 
And you've been, you've been given leaders to help lead the way in that, and in people around us to help bring accountability to that. And, and all of us, as we want, if we want to pursue this kind of unity together, gathering in real unity, it's going to take prayer, it's going to take lament corporately, and it's going to mean that we're actually turning to God's word together. That you understand this is the beauty of what we get to do every Sunday and then in our community groups as well, that the center of everything we do as a church is that we're opening God's word together. That we come together Sundays and our services are laced with God's word from top to bottom, from the call to worship to the benediction, because we're gathered together to hear his voice through his word. When we gather in community groups, your community groups are, are digging into the same text from Sunday to, be, to continue to bring God's word to bear in our lives and, and around people who can hold us accountable to actually living out what we're hearing when we're gathered together corporately. So we need to turn to God's word together in the church. And then fifth and finally, we rely on Jesus together. Look at the way they processed this big decision. They laid out reasonable criteria. They said, all right, it's got to be somebody that has been with us from the very beginning, from Jesus' baptism under John until he was taken from us. And the, they said, okay, what is the role here? What is an apostle supposed to do? And they had to define those things with clarity. They said, well, an apostle is someone who's going to bear witness to, be a witness to the resurrection. So Jesus had said, hey, you're going to be my witnesses. And they said, okay, there were 12 of us. The reason Jesus had 12 disciples is because he was renewing and reconstituting the people of God. It was no longer defined by ethnic Israel. It was now the people of God were defined by Christ and Christ alone. And so in that reconstitution of the people of God, he had 12 witnesses. And so Peter says, we need to have a 12th that we bring in that's going to be a witness to this resurrection, who can be a witness to the historicity of the claims. Because Christianity isn't just mythology. Christianity is rooted in historic events. And so they had 12 that they wanted to ensure we're going to preserve the historic record of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so they said, well, they had two people that fit those criteria. Joseph and Matthias. And so they recognized, they turned to Christ in prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they cast lots. And this brings us to a difficult problem. Casting lots is basically rolling dice or drawing straws. So we don't know which method. There were various methods they could use, but it is essentially like, okay, each of you roll a die and the higher number is an apostle. Um, that doesn't seem the best to me. Um, but it was a practice that was used in the Old Testament. It was endorsed by the Old Testament. In Proverbs 16, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, I don't think that we need to advocate that this is how we're going to start appointing elders in the church, saying, here's the criteria, Lord, you know the heart, roll the dice. Um, but I think that what we have here is a description of one event that happened before the Holy Spirit was given. Lots are never again used in the entire New Testament, so there isn't, it isn't a practice that was continued into the New Testament. Now, this brings us to an issue that we will face almost weekly through the book of Acts together, family. And that is that there's a lot of description, descriptive language about what happened in the early church, and not all of the descriptive language is also prescriptive for us. 
And so we need to, it's a really difficult thing. One of the most biggest challenges in walking through Acts together is figuring out what is descriptive versus prescriptive and being able to figure, to be able to walk that line together. Think of it this way. For a while at Redemption Hill, in our early days, we had a professional Ironman athlete in our church. Her name was Tara, and she was top 30 in the world at Ironman competitions. The prescription for her workouts was very different than what I should do. I would die. <laughs> like actually die, I don't think I could make it through it. She was able to do things and was built a certain way and with a certain passion and had certain aspects. And we do this all the time with workouts where we think, oh, that person's doing this for the New Year's resolution, that'll be what I do too. Not taking into account the different body builds, different metabolisms, different systems, different ages. And so within that, we can hear a description of something that's very good that's not necessarily a prescription for all time's sake. So, in this instance, I think casting of lots falls into that category, that it's a description but not a prescription for us. The point for us here, though, isn't about casting lots. The point for us here that we see is that they relied on Jesus. They recognized, hey, we know these guys, and they've been with us the entire way, even though they weren't part of the inner 12, they were with us from start to finish. There were people that were alongside Jesus the whole way that weren't part of the 12 apostles. And so they recognized that, and even in the midst of that, they said, you know what, even knowing them and walking alongside them for three years, what they had walked through with Judas taught them that they can't actually see into someone's heart. So they turn to Jesus and say, well, it's only the Lord that knows the heart, and so Lord, show us which one of these you've chosen because you see their hearts. So they depended on Jesus to move and act, and as we wait on the Lord, we need to be dependent on Christ. The problem for us is that most of us are working to achieve our independence in our spiritual lives. And if we're honest, most of us are trying to get to a point where we don't have to depend on Jesus anymore, where we don't have the same hurts and pains and crutches in our lives that we have to lean onto, where we can stand strong and be the kind of person that other people turn to. And we don't want to have to rely on people. We, don't, we certainly don't want to have to you know, be the person that's always sad or always upset or doesn't, can't seem to get things together. We want to be independent. And Jesus never calls us to that. There's never a point in, in Scripture where you can say that God's will for his people is to need him less. And so he continues to allow us to experience things that make us depend on him more. So we need to rely on Jesus together. Now, church, I've got to tell you that I had a great sermon that went a completely different direction this week um, that I was crafting over the last couple weeks um, that uh, I just couldn't bring myself to actually preach as we studied this on Tuesday um, to Phil's great relief. <laughs> I think he was trying to talk me out of it from the beginning. Um, but because but I, th I think here, even in this, the unity that we see in these, in these earliest days of the church is really the main point here. I think that there was an intriguing pathway I went down from a couple of commentators that maybe the disciples messed up, that Paul was really the 12th apostle that Jesus had chosen, and that's why we never hear from Matthias again. And it's interesting, it's intriguing, and it'd be really fun to have come and preached about how we manipulate actions by slapping scripture on the top when Jesus has chosen a different direction for us. Uh, it would have been fun. It would have like taken the paint off the walls with that sermon, but... Um, but this is the beauty of what happens in community. 
you open God's word together, you come together in unity, you spend time praying together, lament together, and walk through our own suffering and brokenness together. We can open God's word and turn to it together and sharpen each other with it. And in all of it, we're really, the pursuit that we have in front of us is to become more and more reliant on Jesus. The amazing thing in all of this is that we can take all five of these on an individual level, that this is what all of us need to do more of as part of a church community in the coming year, We can talk about this at a church level, that this is what all of us need to do together, is gather together in unity, pray, lament, open God's word, rely on Christ. And there's a reality that this is the entire history of the church. What we get in this glimpse of an interim period, and this is the disciples are gathered together here, is that they're they're in a period of waiting. They've been promised something huge from Jesus and the power of Christ on them. They've been promised the presence of God coming to bear and, and we live in that in between even now. Jesus has ascended and he hasn't returned yet. We're still waiting for everything he has promised to come in its fullness. And so we're called to wait on the Lord together, to gather and to pray and lament and to open God's word and rely on Jesus, believing that he can work and he does act in time and space. Jeremiah Lanfear, remember him? Um, If you don't, I talked about him at the very top, and you may have been wondering, like, why did he talk about this guy from 1857 that had nobody show up to his prayer meeting? And there's a picture of him. Mild-mannered, 46-year-old Jeremiah Lanfear. The first day, he prayed alone for the first half hour. By the end of the hour, six men had joined him, friends of his. But they were from at least four different denominational backgrounds. The next week, 20 came in to pray. The week after, somehow it turned to 40. And so then all of a sudden it became a daily meeting and it swelled to over 100 people that were gathering with Jeremiah Lanfear to pray. And so churches and pastors started to get involved and, and within six months, more than 10,000 people were meeting in New York City alone. Historians now talk about this as the third great awakening or the businessman's revival. They, some estimates go as high as two million people that may have been, been called to and led to Christ within a two-year time span that all started with Jeremiah Lamphere having an hour-long lunch hour meeting to pray, to wait on the Lord. That two million that may have been led to Christ in those two years was out of a total population of the United States of 30 million at the time for perspective. This is what I want to see happen, church. I want to see the Spirit flood this place. I want to see a groundswell of God's movement among his people. To be tied together in unity with each other, showing off the beauty of the gospel and what real love looks like. To be people that are devoted to and committed to pray together. To to be people that are willing to take on each other's suffering and lament together for individuals and more broadly for our world. To To be able to open God's word together and allow that to be God's voice in our midst and ultimately to all rely more and more on Jesus together. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. It's not to be lazy. It's not to give people an easy letdown because you don't want to be with them. It means that we pursue Christ in community. Psalm 27, it says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We live in confusing and scary and broken times. 
We live lives that hit patches where they're scary and confusing and broken. And in fact, the periods of time when we don't feel those things seem, the, the longer we live, the more an illusion those seem. So Father, we need you. Lord Jesus, we are waiting for and longing for your return. You've promised that you were going to come back and that you would make all things new and that, that you would bring perfect justice to bear and, and perfect righteousness would rule and that you would reign over all things and that we would never taste sickness or sorrow or death or mourning or crying again. And Lord Jesus, we long for that. And we believe that you are able to do that and that you will do that. And so we plead with you that we would get a taste of that even now. Would you move in us as individuals and corporately? Help us to see what you were able to do with 120 scared people in Jerusalem because they were willing to follow your directions and your commands to go where you told them to and to wait for you. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.